Uh, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter number 13. I'll read in verse number 18. Uh, here, the next following, the ver- and the verses to follow, Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 18. And tonight will be the last night, uh, Lord willing. If tonight is not the last night, then either I did a terrible job of preaching or you did a terrible job of listening. We'll just say it that way. I once heard of a preacher who preached the same message every Sunday night for a month straight. Four weeks in a row, preached the same exact message. And a church member came up after that fourth and and final night. They said, Pastor, I noticed you've been preaching the same exact message for a month. Why did you do that? The pastor looked right back at him and said, because you don't know how to listen. Wow. Aren't you glad he's not your pastor, right? (laughs) All right, all right. Sometimes it is that way, though, isn't it? My wife told me she um, has studied education for a long time, and um, she is so good. You, You should see her teach. And she told me a long time ago, and it stuck with me, that repetition is the key to learning. And if you're wondering why sometimes the Lord brings you through the same trials over and over, sometimes it is because repetition is the key to learning. And sometimes he's got to bring us through those trials and he's got to allow those same weaknesses to persist in our life as he did the Apostle Paul, that we would, that we would learn to rest upon his grace And we would learn that over and over and over again. For casting ourselves on the grace of God is not a lesson that you learn once. It is a lifestyle that you should live always. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles and stand to our feet out of reverence for the reading of God's Word as we look at the final message in this series entitled, Hindering His Hand. Hebrews chapter number 13 says this, beginning in verse 18. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly, but I beseech you the rather to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Here's God's desire. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. How? Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, I pray that you would help us tonight. Lord, I ask that you would empty me of myself. Father, that you would fill me with your spirit. Lord, give me a clarity of thought and speech that is able to communicate the importance of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would both speak to me and through me. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the third time approaching this subject. I'll try not to spend as much time in introduction, for it's very much the same as what I've said the past two weeks. But I do want to remind you and draw your attention to the fact that God is at hand. 
And it is God's hand, I believe, with every fiber of my soul that has you here tonight. Perhaps there are some that are watching uh, on, on YouTube or some other electronic recording. Maybe you're driving in your car, you're listening to my voice. I don't think it's by accident. Who knows? I may be dead and gone. Yeah, the famous Jared Shoemade. He lived 100 years ago, and now you're listening to it. I don't think it's an accident. I think God uses this glorious thing called providence to do a work in our lives. And much of the work that God desires to do in our lives, He grants us, and it is a gift, by the way, He grants us the free will to choose, to reject, to resist, or to embrace and be yielded to the work of His Holy Spirit. And even though we serve a God who is almighty and omnipotent among us, there are times because of the way that He chooses not to impose Himself on us, but instead, by his choice, he chooses to, uh, to lead us and, and guide us and gives us the ultimate responsibility to accept, reject, work against, or be yielded to. And as a result of that reality, there are times where we can hinder the work that God wants to do in our hand. As Psalm 78, 41, the Bible tells Israel, yea, they have turned back and tempted God and limited the unlimited one. They have limited the Holy One of Israel. Jesus says the same thing about the nation of Israel in Matthew chapter 23, how he desired to give them things, but they refused. And because of that, uh, there were many things that belonged to them that they would not and did not yet possess. There are things we can do to hinder his hand and his desire to work in our life. Now, there's many things, and this is not a comprehensive study, but there are three things specifically mentioned in the book of Hebrews. The first one that we covered was chastening. You can hinder his hand. In fact, his hand is hindered when his chastening is rejected. When God brings difficult circumstances into your life or painful moments attempting to get your attention that you might listen up or that your heart might be turned back to him, bringing that correction into your life, that chastening hand. When chastening is rejected, then the work that God desires to do by that chastening is hindered. Therefore, his work in your life is hindered. Uh, the second night, last week, we discussed the fact that there is another way that his hand could be hindered. His hand can be hindered when bitterness is rooted. Uh, when bitterness takes root in our heart, and we examine the fact that there is a wound of bitterness. Bitterness almost always comes because there is some sort of tragedy or injustice that took place. Uh, we looked at the warning of bitterness. We examined the work of bitterness, how it targets grace. And, and then we looked at the weeding of bitterness, that, that this bitterness is something that comes up from time to time and must be weeded continually. But tonight I would like to turn our attention to the previous chapter, Hebrews chapter number 12. And here is the final thing that often hinders the work of God's hand in our life. Hebrews chapter number 12, verse number 25. It says, see that ye refuse not him 
that speaketh. It seems that this one is the easiest one to employ in our life. This one is the one that most commonly shows up for all of us. And you may feel that what I'm about to say seems elementary to some degree, but it is those most elementary and foundational ways and means that God communicates with us that if hindered can have the most severe impact on our life. So I would entitle it this way, hindering his hand. The third way that God's hand is hindered here in the book of Hebrews is when his word is refused. When his word is refused. Now, I would like to go back to this text. I always think that it is so important to allow the context of Scripture to add volume to God's voice. Don't you love it when volume is added? I mean, I'm a, I'm a preacher, and, and sometimes I, I can't get enough volume. And usually I would say that the times where I'm trying to get more volume are the times where you would prefer that I not add more volume. I'll tell you when I don't want volume. I don't want volume when I'm the one that's getting in trouble. In fact, I would have to confess to you here tonight that there have been many times where I have been dead wrong and my wife has been helping me with this, and I do mean helping me with this, and the volume begins to raise. And I will respond, kind of sheepishly saying, well, I would hear it better if you would just calm down. Can I get a witness, <laughs> right? But sometimes that volume gets raised because we're not paying attention. So I'd like to step back and I want to pay attention to the context of this because we're going to be drawing from the context of this passage here tonight. Hebrews chapter number 12. The greater context of this chapter lies within the greater context of Hebrews. And the greater context of Hebrews is this. That Jesus Christ is greater. In fact, if you were to go back to the very first chapter of Hebrews and begin to work your way through, you will find this theme throughout the entire book. This theme, although there is some, um, we will say, debate about who the man, the, the author was. The, we know that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but who God used to write these words. Some say Paul. Some will even say Apollos was used to write this. Barnabas is another um, name that gets thrown around. Uh, but we're not entirely sure, although everybody seems to have their opinion. What we do know is this, is that God wrote it. And God wrote this message to a specific group of people, and those were those that were brought up in Judaism. And, and Jesus is being paralleled with many of the things within Judaism. For, for instance, that when you go through the book of Hebrews, you will learn that there is a concerted effort to demonstrate, and does so successfully, by the way, of saying that Jesus is greater than the prophets. Uh, you know, you remember Isaiah and Daniel and, and Jeremiah and, and Hosea and Habakkuk and, and Amos and all of these prophets that, that are revered of the Hebrew people. And, and Hebrews is written to say that Jesus is greater than the prophets. 
You'll find that Jesus is greater than the angels in this book. You find a comparison with Moses, that Jesus is greater than Moses, that Jesus is greater than the Sabbath, that Jesus is greater than the priesthood. Jesus is greater than the old covenant, for he came to establish the new covenant. And you'll find that when the Old Testament sacrifices are laid alongside the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is no bull or sheep or dove that was sacrifice in the Old Testament that compares to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. So with that context in mind, let's look at Hebrews chapter number 12 as this story is laid out in front of us. Verse number 18. The Bible says, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched. Now, you'll find in these next few verses, we're talking about Mount Sinai. Remember when Moses went up and got the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, and the presence of the Lord came upon the mountain, and it was quaking, and there was fire, and there was thunder, and there was lightning, and and there was a command, keep the people away, and the people themselves wanted to be kept away. They were terrified that the presence of God was there. Verse 18, for ye are not coming to a mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. Verse 20, this parenthetical. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so, much, if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Then he says, but ye are come unto Mount Sion. Not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion, if you will. That heavenly mountain of God. Verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Sion. Notice that that it is greater, as I said. And unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven... And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of, the, of sprinkling that speaketh, there it is, speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Now as we look at this hindrance of God's hand and those that refused God's word, let's first off take a look at the voice that is speaking. The voice that it's speaking. In verse 25 it says, See that you refuse not him that speaketh. Do you have any relationships in your life that when they speak to you, you really don't care what they say? I am not going to ask for a raise of hands. (laughs) Because the truth might come out. (laughs) 
that some of those people are in this room and that would be embarrassing. But we all have those people, right? And no matter what they say, we really don't care what they say. Because in our ears, their credentials, if you will, their credibility, their reputation is so insignificant that no matter what they say, we really don't care what they have to say. We have no regard to it. So I think that before we can examine what God is saying, it is very important to examine the credential, if you will. So when we come to verse number 25, it is a legitimate question, perhaps the most important question, who is speaking? Who is the one that's talking here? Because that makes all of the difference, uh, whether we should bend our ear towards it, whether we should give it the authority to dictate our lives or to control our actions, it all hinges around that question, who is talking? And when we come to verse number 25, we come by way of the context that led up to it, that defines who is speaking in an incredible and a powerful way. If we were to just go one verse before it, we would find this statement, verse 24, and to Jesus, which we're going to get to um, a little bit more about Jesus here in a moment, but notice verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. And then there's an interesting parallel made here. And here's the parallel between Jesus and Abel. And to the blood of of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. And that made me think about, think about two, two things concerning Abel. So there's two things that we really know about. If we were to look about this from the perspective of those who it was written to, those Jews who knew the story of Cain and Abel really well. I, I once heard a message, and I almost always think of the title of this message every single time I see Abel's name. Uh, there was an evangelist that was traveling around, and he once preached a message on Cain and Abel, and this was his title. I love it. He said that, that Satan is raising Cain, but God is still able. I thought, oh, that's pretty clever. I, I like that. And he's drawing the contrast between the life of Cain and the life of Abel. Satan is raising Cain, but God is still Abel. And, and I was thinking about that because there's a comparison to be made in this verse as well. And what do we know about Abel? Well, one thing that we know about Abel is that, that his sacrifice is the one that was accepted, wasn't it? There was a sacrifice by Cain and a sacrifice by Abel. There was a sacrifice of, of fruits and vegetables, and then there was a sacrifice that was by what? By blood. And it was the blood sacrifice that was acceptable unto God. And that seems to be what is in picture here in verse number 24, because it says, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. In other words, it's saying, hey, God accepted the blood sacrifice of Abel, didn't he? Genesis 4, 4. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat thereof. And listen to this. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. 
So what it's saying here is that God had great respect to the offering of Abel, but there is another sacrifice that God had even more respect to. And that was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that he made for the sins of the world that we might be forgiven and brought into the presence of God. This was the preferred sacrifice, even above the sacrifice above Abel, because actually, Abel's sacrifice may have been preferred, but Christ's sacrifice was perfect. Once Jesus' sacrifice was accomplished, there was no other sacrifice for sin that was needed. Or if I could say it this way, that Jesus' sacrifice stands alone. There is nothing like it. We would agree. There's something else, though, that is perhaps one event removed from this story, but I can't help but notice the language of verse 24 because this is talking about blood that speaketh. Something else we know about Abel is that Abel's blood spoke. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, I'll remind you in Genesis chapter 4, verse number 10, Cain had slain Abel and thought that he had gotten away with it. In fact, this was the very first death that we know of in all of human history and certainly in Scripture. And it was a murder that Cain murdered Abel. And now for the very first time, a living man is looking upon the dead, lifeless flesh as blood is flowing out of this man's body and seeping into the ground. And then Cain believes that he's kind of gotten away with it until the Lord comes along in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10 and says, this. And he said, what hast thou done? This is God speaking to Cain. The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Cain's blood, though being dead, yet speaketh. And I realize that this is one event removed away from Abel's sacrifice of blood, but it is uncanny to me that the subject is the speaking of blood in verse 24. And then as we come to verse number 25, the emphasis seems to be, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. And could it not be wise for us to look at that and be reminded that there is another blood that is still speaking? Not the blood of Abel, but a greater blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that purchased our redemption that we sang about at the very beginning of the service. The blood that has brought us nigh unto the Father. And it is by the sacrifice of that blood. And that blood is still speaking. So I come to you and I ask the question again, who is talking in verse 25? It is God. But the word of God has chosen to frame his words in a very specific way. And that those words come to us by way of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now listen, if you miss this, you may miss the the value of the rest of, of the message. Is it when God speaks to us as sons and as daughters, 
He is speaking to us in light of the fact that His Son, Jesus Christ, has already paid the full sacrifice to purchase us. Remember that whole passage that teaches us that that we are not our own? And then it goes on and says that we have been bought with a price. The reason we are not our own is because the blood of Jesus Christ has purchased us, has bought us, has bought us, by the way, out of slavery, has bought us out of sin, has bought us out of the power of the flesh, and has placed us under the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And now that we have been purchased and placed in Him, God wants to guide us, God wants to mold us, God wants to conform us to the image of His Son, And the way that he does that more frequently than any other way is not by chastening nor uh, nor by any other circumstance, but instead by his very word. He desires to speak to us and he has purchased the right to do that by the blood of his son. Are you following me here? So when he speaks, we need to remember who's speaking. The one that is speaking is the one that is sacrificed, is the one that has shed blood, is the one that has purchased us, is the one that owns us. We are not our own. Look, you are someone's servant. You're either a servant of Satan, a servant of the flesh, or the servant of the Most High. And you need to pay very close attention who's talking because that determines who you listen to. I, I can't help myself. I've, I've got to say just a little bit more about the context of who our God is and who's speaking. I'm going to try to do this quickly. Try to do this quickly. Notice in verse number 22, the one that is speaking says says this, but ye are come unto Mount Sion, unto the city of the living God, unto the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling. Now now listen, this is what I want you to grasp. And it took me a second to view it this way, but I believe that this is indeed the way it's intended to be viewed. That when God speaks, it is within a certain company. Now I I know that whenever whenever we are talking about about prayer or whenever whenever we come to this, often we view it as prayer and understandably so. In verse number 18, look at the movement. For ye are not come unto the mountain. In other words, it's talking about those that came unto this mountain on their own will. Verse 22, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. And and sometimes we'll quote these verses and, and we will encourage our heart because when we come to the Lord in prayer, we're coming not to Mount Sinai, but we are coming to a very heavenly place. And sometimes I think it's very healthy to imagine opening and entering into that, that throne room of God. And having entered in, we take a look around. Could I capture your attention for just a moment? When we enter in 
to the throne room of prayer. If we were to open our eyes in that throne room, here's what we would see. We would see first off the city of the living God. We look around and we would see the splendor of that place that God resides. After being blown away by the awe-inspiring visual impact of this glorious city, the city of the living God, which is described as the heavenly Jerusalem, we then notice that in, in the presence of that throne room, as we pray to God in this heavenly Jerusalem, in the city of the living God, that we see what verse 22 describes as an innumerable company of angels. Have you ever thought that when we pray to God, we pray in the presence of an innumerable company of angels? We pray also in the presence, verse 23, of the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. We are praying and in the presence of a heavenly city, New Jerusalem, in the presence of God, in the presence of innumerable angels, and in the presence of the Lamb's book of life itself, which contains the names of every single individual living and dead, the general assembly of the firstborn that is there in the presence of God. I go farther and I, I see not only is the general assembly of the firstborn there, but also it says, which are written in heaven, it, it also it says, and to God, the judge of all. So there is God in all of his splendor, in all of his glory. The, the unity of the Godhead is there. The person of God, the Father of God, the Spirit of God are all present, specifically listed as the judge of all. And then look at what it says at the close of verse number 23. And to the spirits of just men made perfect. Could, could we just run the risk of being a bit informal for a moment. Who's that talking about? Do we have any takers? Who's that talking about? Are we nervous? We've entered in prayer. We see that we open our eyes and find ourselves. In holy city, heavenly Jerusalem, we look around. There's an innumerable company of angels. There is the Lamb's book of life written in heaven. There is God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, the judge of all. And then there are the spirits of just men who have already been made perfect. Who is that? That's the saints. That's the saints that have already gone on. Incredible. Incredible that we can come to this place, isn't it? Amen. Now this whole time I've been talking about, if we were to view this to where when we enter in in prayer, but that's really not the emphasis. The emphasis here is not when we enter in in prayer, but instead when God bows towards the earth to speak to man. That all of these elements are present there. Listening, seeing, observing God trying to break through and speak to our hearts.
So, Pastor Jared, where do, that, where do you see that in the text? Well, look at verse number 18. For ye are not come into the mountain that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. Why did they come to that mountain? So that God could speak to them. And God could be revealed to them by his word. Verse number 19. And the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words. The voice, which voice that they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. What were they there for? To hear of his word. And what do we hear in verse number 25? With all of this said in verse number 22, 23, and 24 about Jesus being there and the blood being there and the assembly being there and the saints being there. There and God being there and the holy city being there and the innumerable host of angels being there. Why is everyone there? Because they have all gathered to hear what God has to say to us. Let that sink in. That when we're asking the question, should we listen? Why don't we grab this perspective from the heavens for a moment? If it was so significant for God to outline all of these details that we would understand when he opens his mouth to speak to us that all of these are present as well, then surely doesn't it make sense that we should choose to be there also? Yes, 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 it does. We should see the value of his speech. Why do we take his words towards us so loosely, so flippantly? How is it that our ears are not always pinned toward heaven, listening intently for every still, small voice or word that might, might come from the throne of God in the presence of all these things? Why is it that we have become so common with the fact that every page on this book is his word spoken from heaven by his Holy Spirit that has now been sanctified by the blood of his son. This is a big deal. And people wonder why I get so bent out of shape when it comes to loosely translating the Bible. Hello! But it's easier to read. But God, I'm not going to go down that trail tonight. There's really not the goal. The goal is to talk about the fact and emphasize the fact that sometimes with all this said, we still don't listen. We still don't listen. And in the next... 10 minutes. I just want to point out three ways that that we tend to refuse his voice. I would say that if I were to ask you all tonight, do you refuse his voice? Many of you would probably say, no, what, what on earth do you mean? And then if I were to reframe the question and say, do you always do what he says? You'd say, no, I don't always do what he says. It's the same thing. Same thing. And there's basically three reasons why that happens. The first one, let me give you, is this. The first reason that we tend to refuse his voice is because we're simply not listening. We are simply not listening or we are not realizing that it's him in the first place. 
which I think is just a subcategory of not listening. You know, I find it amazing that when we look at Ezekiel chapter 3, and you can write this down. I'm just going to read it. I was going to turn there, but just write it down and and examine this later. But in Ezekiel chapter number 3, verse number 4, God is speaking to his prophet Ezekiel, and here's what he said. He said unto me, son of man, so now God is speaking, go, get thee unto the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. And then God says something really interesting to me. In verse number five of Ezekiel three, he says, for thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language. Verse number six says this, not too many people of a strange speech and of a hard language whose words thou canst not understand. Surely had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. In other words, what he's saying is, That the reason they're not hearing you, Ezekiel, has nothing to do with your language. You are speaking their language. And friends, God is speaking our language. You don't have to go learn Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. You don't have to go, you know, search the deeper things of God. It's like, oh, I just don't understand what all is being said. No, he's putting it in black and white and he's speaking your language. And and it might just be that you aren't listening. You're just not listening. And why are you not listening? There's a number of things which could lead into things I've already preached on. Perhaps you're not listening because of bitterness. Verse number seven of Ezekiel three, that same exact passage says this, but the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee. God's just telling Ezekiel, hey, don't get discouraged because you're gonna go to them. You're gonna speak their language. They're gonna understand your words, but they're not gonna do it. They're not going to do it. And here's why they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. They will not hearken unto me for all the house of Israel is impotent and hard-hearted. In other words, they're saying their heart's not in it and they're weak. That's why. That's why. And I had a conversation today that is so much, or not today, but a couple of days ago that was so much in line with how I've been thinking. And the person I was speaking to said, said this, She said, I think we fear revival. I agree a thousand percent. Because the way that we envision revival is that we just get to be happy and really close to God without it costing anything. But I believe genuine revival requires repentance. I'll not go over that again. I preached on this recently. But it costs us something. Now, what it costs us compared to what we gain is nothing. It's not worthy to be compared with the things which shall be revealed. I believe that revival is worth it. But in order for revival to come, we must hear his words. And in order to hear his words, we've got to get over the fact. We've got to get over the fact that maybe he's going to say some things that we're not going to like, that are difficult for us to hear. And that's why God tells Ezekiel, they're not listening because they're empty. They're they're not strong enough. They don't have the guts to hear what I have to say. And I just wonder, do we have the guts to hear what he has to say? If he were to convict us so clearly that we knew that we were in the wrong, would we have the guts to respond? 
We become so comfortable sitting in our seats, putting our feet up, walking out after the service, knowing that the preacher was preaching to someone else. But that's not the way revival happens. And that's not the way that God speaks. God speaks your language. And when he's speaking your language in my language, he is speaking to be heard. He is speaking to be obeyed. He is speaking to be followed. And we, when we refuse his voice, sometimes it's because we're simply not listening. The second way that we refuse his voice is that we refuse his messengers. Refuse his messengers. You know, and I, I don't mean to sound sarcastic when I say this. Sometimes I, I'll come um, back home after the service and I'll rehearse some of the things that I said in the way that I said them. And to be honest, I think, man, I, I should not have said that in such a light or sar- such a sarcastic way. And I want to be very careful right here at this juncture because I don't want to come across sarcastic. This is, this is genuine in my nature is that, that sometimes God's going to communicate in a way you don't like. And he's going to use people you don't like. I, I preached a message a few years ago on, on the people that I can't help. And, and there are some people I can't help. I can't help you if you don't do what I say. Not because I know better than you. Because, well, I mean, I, I might know better than you. Hmm. I've been around for almost 40 years, you know. I, there are some things that, that are so true, though. I can't help you if you don't do what I say. But I can't help you if you don't like me. I have learned this in my inexperience. People have come into my office. Oh, pastor, help me, help me, help me. And I know they don't like me. I know they don't like me because they've told other people that they don't like me. Let me let, me let you in on something. If someone is willing to listen to your gossip, they're probably willing to pass it along. Hello. And just because they might not listen to God, they're happy to listen to you. And there they sit. I know they don't like me. They've said it in no uncertain terms. And so this is what you got to do. And sure enough, they, they weren't interested in what I had to say. They weren't interested in, in anything at all. I'd open my Bible and I could read from Scripture and they would disagree with it. Why? Because they don't like me. And the fact is, there are some people that we don't like. Some of you might not like me right now. I don't like what he's saying. I don't like that guy. I don't like me either half the time, Okay. <laughs> God has a tendency to use people that we don't like. And sometimes God uses a tone that we don't like. God, I don't like you taking that tone with me. Do you not realize that I was saved like 4,500 years ago and I got half the Bible memorized? I mean, God, I've made great sacrifice to you. I mean, just look at my giving statement, God. Look at all the things that I've done. And what we're saying is, God, I don't like the tone you're using with me. So how does God use a tone? Sometimes the preacher gets a little on to you and you don't like it. You know, that's what happened with Moses many times. 
They didn't like him, and he was bringing God's word, but they didn't want to listen. Why? Because they just couldn't stand the look of his face. They couldn't stand the, the sound of his voice. They didn't want to be around him. In fact, there were times where they were ready to depose Moses and bring on other leaders. Why? Because they didn't like him. And we wonder why the children of Israel had such a hard time being encouraged in the Lord. It's because they weren't hearing his words. And 100% of them, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb that were under a certain age, 100% of them end up dying in the wilderness. Why? Was it because they were rebellious? That had something to do with it. But it had even more to do with the fact that they would not hear God. And why couldn't they hear him? They didn't like Moses. Sometimes we don't hear him. Why? Because we, we don't realize that he's using men we don't like. He's speaking with tones that we don't like and we're missing it and we are hindering the hand of God. And here it is, we have this glorious picture of the heavenlies, that heavenly Jerusalem and all the saints and angels and, and the blood of Jesus Christ being there as God is speaking his word to us. And here we are, arms crossed saying, bless Bless me if you can. Oh, God, help us. Where is our sensitivity? Where is the softness of our heart? Where is a willingness to listen to the still, small voice with humility, recognizing that maybe, maybe it's not the messenger's fault. Maybe it is us. There's one more reason. There's one more reason that we often refuse to hear his voice. And it's that we disagree with what he's saying. We just disagree with him. And we could quote all day, let God be true and every man a liar. But until we come to a place where we apply that to ourselves... We're gonna have a hard time hearing him. It's, it's no mistake that, that he has, the, that God gives us this correlation between the proud and those that are far from him. In fact, does not the, the Bible say that God resisteth the proud? I, I think there's also an element where the proud are resisting God. Resisting his word, resisting the fact that, that maybe what he's saying is exactly what he's saying. And we need to humble ourselves because we are the ones that are out of line and are in desperate need of repair. And I can't speak for everyone in the room. But I don't want to get to heaven and have God say, well, I tried. Jared, you wouldn't listen. Some of us, we want to get to heaven and say, well, God, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? And why, why didn't your promises become real in my life? And why didn't you use me to do this? And how come you never did that? And, and what if he were to turn around and just say, I tried. Why didn't you listen? Why didn't you humble yourself? I chastened you. I chastened you. You refused it. 
You blamed me for it, saying that I was just trying to make your life miserable. You looked at everybody else's life who was so, so rosy and fine, and you looked to the difficulty you were going through, and never for a moment you thought that maybe I put that in your life to draw you near. You refused my chastening. God, why didn't you do this? All that bitterness you had in your heart, that root that grew, I tried. You limited the Holy One of Israel. God, why didn't you just tell me? I did. I did. I sent your parents, didn't I? I sent your pastor, didn't I? You remember when you were driving down the road and all of a sudden that came onto the radio and it seemed to be speaking exactly what you were dealing with, but you didn't like it. Turn that thing right off. Did you ever consider that maybe that was my voice, dear son, dear daughter? Sometimes we just need to start listening. There are things that hinder God's hand. May we have enough humility and sensitivity to rid those from our life and be used that his hand might actually accomplish his purpose in our life. Father, help us. Help us, dear God, help us.